Welcome to 50 Date Night Screams. I'm Amber Tresca. And I'm Mike Tresca. We're a married couple who decide to celebrate our 50th birthdays by watching some old movies. A lot of old movies. Join us as we watch 50 movies on our date nights and have fun dissecting them. As a bonus, each episode is accompanied by an original character I created and designed for use in your tabletop role-playing games. Many of the movies we watch are unrated, but this podcast is not. 50 Date Night Screams contains mature themes and is intended for adult audiences, so take care when listening. Plus, there are spoilers. Check the show notes to see where you can watch this movie before you listen. We're glad you're here. Have a seat, grab a glass of your favorite beverage, and get ready to scream along with us. Gentlemen, your attention, please. In compliance with the laws of this state, you are gathered here to witness the execution of Nicholas Ross. You will file quietly into the death chamber and remain silent in your seats until the order is given to leave. Follow me, please. Okay, welcome to another episode of 50 Date Night Screams. We are on episode 21, and our movie is I Killed That Man from 1941. I'm here with my co-host and husband, Mike Tresca. Mike, how you doing? Hi, beautiful. I just want to say I'm okay. So she didn't kill me. I'm not the man, just for the record, in case anybody's worried. Yeah. I'm still alive. (laughs) Quote, I killed that man. I'm not the man. Unquote. Just in case anybody's worried. Depending on the style, I tells, I killed that man on I tells. Okay, so I'm try- I was trying to think about content warnings for this one. I really can't come up with anything. It does involve the death penalty. But kind of, yeah. Other than in a tangential way, but other than that, I don't I can't really think of anything. So I don't really have a proper content warning for this episode other than uh, some people die. And repetitive plots. If you're allergic to repetitive plots, you may not love this. I was literally thinking that that was a content warning that we should maybe put on Mm -hmm. this episode. All right. The title of this movie, I Killed That Man. The year is 1941. It is black and white. The director is Phil Rosen. It has a 5.7 out of 10 on IMDb. I'm a little... Wow. Looking a little askance at that 5.7. Yeah. All right. The hilarious tagline is extra... Murderer murdered in a death chamber. Okie dokie. All right. (laughs) (laughs) It is, I think, one hour and 29 minutes. I once again just totally borked the length. Um, But it is, no, it's not, right? It's about an hour. No, it's an hour and three minutes. It's an hour and three minutes. So I did get that right. All right. So many of these movies are short that um, I get them mixed up. All right. Tiny little piece of trivia on this one. It is a remake of another movie. And that movie was called The Devil's Mate from 1933. I did not watch The Devil's Mate because I don't give a flying fuck. So it was just probably a a silent film. Is a silent film? Yeah. 1933. I don't know. It could have been. It could have been a talkie. Who knows? Okay. Maybe I'll go and see if it's on the youtubes and see about watching it but uh you know i don't know that's pretty early in film history so okay all right all right here is a brief brief summary (laughs) all right i didn't write this we don't have to do a summary remember the other 20 movies we talked about just do that there you go (laughs) all right 
Just prior to his execution, a condemned murderer decides to tell the authorities who hired him to commit the murder. Okay, that's like what? Weird. That's that's totally new. Brand new information. <laughs> new plot line here. However, he's killed by a poison dart in front of a room full of officials and reporters before he can divulge the name. That is also totally new. Totally new plot <laughs> device here. An assistant district attorney and a pretty newspaper reporter team up to discover the, quote, mystery man, unquote, behind the murders. Uh, my mind is blown. I've never heard of this before. This is never, astonishing. Never. I, I do have a question. <laughs> is it a pretty newspaper or is it a pretty reporter? What are we talking? It's a pretty uh, newspaper I've seen reporter. some attractive newspapers. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love how they don't say the gender. So I've seen some pretty men in my life. I don't know. Anyway, the movie kind of starts out with a slight little bit of a fake out because there's a bunch of people in a room talking, drinking coffee, and we don't really know what's going on. Kind of almost seems like a party. It's all men. Yeah, they're doing like dice games and stuff. Like, yeah, it yeah. Does, they're, like, it has gambling like a whole, and whatnot. Like, really seedy vibe to it, actually. Yeah, yeah it's f wild. And then we realize they're they're actually in a prison, and they're waiting there to witness an execution. The man who's being executed is a murderer. Although, from what I understand, he only murdered one person. Not, I don't know if you could qualify that, but I'm a little bit like you get the death penalty for murdering one. One person? Is that how that works? I just, it's not like you mul murdered multiple people. But anyway, um, this dude's name is Nick Ross. Okay. So Nick was kind of waiting for a pardon. We don't really know why, but he ain't getting one. And so he's going to the death chamber. And this is so weird, too, because they, like, march him into the middle of this room of people. And it's like, well, that seems smart. <laughs> like, didn't he murder somebody? Isn't yeah. he probably guilty of other things as well and, like, stuff going on and you're just going to, like, he just take take him into the middle of this room of people? I don't know. And we know all about that because of Buried Alive, which tells us all about how executions are supposed to happen. And this is not the way it's supposed this to happen. This is not the way that an execution But there's is a reason. Yeah. All right. All right. Nick decides now is his moment. He's going to tell everybody that he committed the murder on behalf of someone else. So he's put he, up to he, it. He murdered a reporter, right? That was the other point. The person he murdered was a reporter, right? So I don't know okay, who. I'm getting there. Like the okay. next sentence. <laughs> Let me get it out of my mouth. He was hired to kill a cub reporter. See, it's written right there. Look at the notes, bro. Who was going to print a story that would have defamed his boss. He prepares to tell everybody who that person was in very dramatic fashion. And then suddenly... Bam! He drops dead. He has apparently been poisoned by a dart. Okay. Now, who happens to be there? The district attorney. His name is Roger Phillips. Another small little piece of trivia. Uh, the actor that plays Roger Phillips adopted a Latin-sounding name, even though not Latin at all. Definitely European, but it had something to do with, at that time, um, wa wanting to be a little different, I guess. It's not okay what he did. That's not, it's not okay at all. 
but he kind of adopted that look. And because it's a black and white movie, I actually did wonder if he was of Latin or Hispanic descent. And not at all. <laughs> not at all. They just kind of like made him look that way and changed his name. <sighs> Cheap okay. copy of the real thing, in other words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh-huh. It had something to do with like Lawrence of Arabia. I'm sure. Popular at that time. Yeah. And, and, you know. That's act- this whole movie. Anyway. All right, so <laughs> the district attorney decides he's going to search everybody there for a murder weapon. He makes everybody undress and then sit back down to where they were when the murder happened. Sort of like Midnight Phantom. All right, I'm, I'm going to let you have at it. Have at it. It's a poison dart. It's another poison dart. Let's hear it. Let's hear your take on it, Mike. So, thank you, dear. Hopefully I survive to the end of this. <laughs> I am not the man that is killed, but um, the whole concept of this is very much a trope upon trope, um, but it is playing on the tropes. And those those tropes are that the blow dart gun, the blow dart poison blow dart thing was done to death in the 40s, I guess, at this point, which is why it was a plot point in some several of the movies we've discussed uh, and reviewed. So uh, it is, again, playing on the assumption that that's what you think this is. Right, so it is very much basically saying, person was poisoned. It's got to be a dart, and if that's the case, it has to be a dart from some kind of blow type device, which would logically mean this cigarette holder. What's always astonishing in these films is that they never actually show anybody using any kind of device that would make sense. So the cigarette holder thing, even though it's found in people's pockets afterwards, we never see it in action. At one point, someone else says maybe he has a pipe. Um, which is super weird because I have no idea how that would work. Yeah, well, except shooting we'll get there. In the air. All right, so we cut to the pretty reporter, who is Roger's girlfriend. Her name is Jerry Reynolds. You know, I have to like also think about the way that I write these things. Why am I not saying that Jerry? Like, I'm saying Roger's girlfriend is a reporter. Why am I not saying? Jerry's boyfriend is the district attorney. Yeah, what's wrong with you? I don't know. I have to really think about these things a little bit more in the way that I phrase them. All right. So the reporter, her name is Jerry Reynolds. Her boyfriend is Roger, the district attorney. So her boss at the paper is wondering why this execution is taking so long. They haven't heard anything. They've had no news, no phone calls, nothing. So he sends her over there because he knows she has an in. Ha ha. So one of the people there at the at the execution in this what they what they keep calling a death chamber they keep referring to it that way is a man named Lowell King and he is going to be on the parole board I guess so he's some big dude to do he has a pill case he makes a big show of why he has a pill case he has indigestion he takes these this medication for it etc he seems like very kind of fussy man there's another man there. His name is Jay Reed. He is on the board of a nonprofit that apparently is against capital punishment, although we never really find out exactly what they do or how they are opposing capital punishment. All right, so they're investigating everybody there. They find this one this one older man. His name is Lanning. He has a cigarette holder in the pocket of his coat. Okay. Now, then they start going after him. They say this could be used as a dart blower. 
Lanning says, and and he just appears to be this. He owned a candy store. He just appears to be this gentle older gentleman. And he says, this was my daughter's. I took it from her. I didn't want her smoking. She looks like a loose woman. Like, that's what he says. It's hilarious. Um, Roger doesn't believe any of it. So they arrest Lanning for the murder of Nick. King is there. He says he'll be a witness. He gives his phone number to Roger. And we see the phone number. It's one of those things where they show it and you go, okay, this is important because you wouldn't be showing it to me if it weren't important. The phone number is 1313. So by this time, Jerry is there. She has a nose for the news. So she immediately tries to get closer to King and he's confused. Why is this good looking, you know, woman coming up to him and chatting him up? And he goes along with her. And at this point, like Roger, the district attorney, he totally knows that Lanning is not the killer. He knows that. He feels like he had to arrest someone while they try to figure it out. So, which seems wild, but that was his explanation. And this is a, it is an interesting framing device because everybody has to turn out their pockets and then they have to tell their story to the DA. So the movie sets it up so every potential villain and or culprit or whatever has to tell their little story as they get and retrieve their their pocket items which of course tells its own story so that was entertaining in the sense that it it sort of set a framing device to introduce everybody so who might be the real killer that we that man that i that you killed that someone kills right for sure so at this point you're thinking to yourself that the killer has to be king or Reed, or Lanning, but we think it's probably not Lanning, unless it's a complete red herring situation and it's the district attorney. Jerry wasn't even in the room, so couldn't have been her. Nobody else really in the room is really named or has a speaking line, so you kind of figure they're not, you know, important in here. I feel like, again, we've got the plucky reporter. Um, She's a pretty enjoyable character overall, but she's moving this along. She's moving the investigation along. I don't know why Roger didn't suspect anyone other than this older candy store owning man. Like, it just didn't make any sense like why did it have to be a cigarette case there was there's no other way that someone could deliver a poison dart like it does like you could even hold it in your mouth probably and you know just like shoot it across the room I, like I don't know um you could have a straw and then you could have swallowed the straw like I don't know there's so many other things and it's really Jerry that her intuition, her nose, whatever you want to call it, is is leading her towards King, and that's where she's that's where she starts going. And there's a couple of things we start to see with the plucky reporter archetype. Um, she is not my favorite. We'll get to her. She's in a different movie, but um, she's pretty good. She's pretty good at this. But it's the same concepts over and over, right? Which is the the plucky reporter is worried about her job. She's struggling to make sure she's scooped. Either by she wants the scoop, she uses her connection with the DA or whoever in enforcement. And that's always weird because everybody's just like, you know, everybody's okay with it, apparently. Um, So she definitely uses that to her own advantage, number one. I think the other thing is her, the fact she's a woman, she uses to her advantage because other women talk to her. 
And I think that's always an intro. And it's almost always a plot point that basically the plucky female reporter gets information that she wouldn't get if she was a man, um, which is interesting. And then usually the third piece for her is that she's very independent and therefore um, fighting for her role to really be successful. And it's always interesting because this almost always gets undermined by the promise of marriage. And apparently, you know, they, I think there's always the specter of uh, she could get hurt. Right. If she's covering crime scenes or whatever like this, it's a dangerous profession and not something any well-respecting woman would want because, you know, she could die. So um, there's always sort of this implied like she's just, you know, she's got to do this to make her successful until someone can make enough money, usually the husband to be, uh, until she can get out of the profession. But I, never once do we ever see that the plucky reporter wants to get out of the – like, I never see that at all. They never actually say, like, wow, I hate to do this. Can't wait to get married so I can get out of it. It's sort of this little tension between uh, the plucky female reporter and the male uh, law enforcement person because sometimes it's a DA, sometimes it isn't. But um, she's sort of in the middle of the pack. She's she's good. I, th- I thought the actress was great, but uh, there's definitely a lot of, like – she's kind of just leading the whole plot around. Because if it doesn't happen, she doesn't do anything. Nothing happens. Yeah, for for sure, you know. And at this point, Roger actually asks her, asks Jerry to go over and see Nick's girlfriend. Nick's girlfriend's name is Vern Verna Drake. So we learn now through the discussion at the police department that there was a poison on the dart, but that it's it's easily obtained. So nothing special. And it's the prison doctor. He tells us that it's even sometimes used to treat diseases. So it's not anything that's, you know, came from the Amazon rainforest or something like that. All right. So Jerry goes over and sees Vern. The actress that plays Vern uh, was well known. And um, they both did. They both were, both these actresses. But she went on to do a lot more movies. And um, it's kind of funny because she has that... (laughs) She has that kind of funny 40s accent that people adopted at that time. So she answers the door and she's she's all like, well, what are you doing here? I'm not going to talk to you. You know, you're in with the cops and you're a reporter and that that kind of thing, which Jerry doesn't do. So yeah. that's interesting to me um, as well. Yes, it's it's definitely a criminal underworld right. can't to her speech that's the why don't you come and see me sometime kind of thing that yeah is definitely yeah going on. yeah yeah so jerry tells Vern. this is actually kind of funny because she's in a kind of a ham-handed way she's like nick is dead uh but he wasn't executed um he was actually murdered uh so together the two of them try to piece things to to together who might have been paying nick to do this murder And then Vern remembers that Nick made a phone call from her apartment one time and that she heard him arguing with somebody who owed Nick money. Vern doesn't know anything except part of the phone number. And what's the number? 1313. Uh Uh-oh. Jerry doesn't know that this number has significance yet. All right. So, but she gets this partial number. She leaves. She's actually... Very sweet to to Vern and Verna and is like, don't leave. Look, honey, you're in danger. Uh, look, I'm just telling you. Like, don't leave. Don't go anywhere. Don't do anything. Wait till you hear from me. So uh, at this point, uh, Verna's phone rings and there's a phone call. Somebody tells her, stop talking to reporters. 
and you need to get out of town. And they're not, they're not telling her kindly, you know. So Vern then calls one of our other suspects, Jay Reed, and says, you need to come over here right away. The plot thickens, as they say. So uh, Jerry says to uh, her district attorney boyfriend, you need to send a detective over to Verna's place. You need to watch her. And he does. Um, for her safety, not for any other reason. Roger then remembers about the phone number. King's phone number is 1313. King had written it on a business card. And now Jerry is suspicious. It's too much of a coincidence, right? There's another code, letters and numbers, on written on the business card. It's really very funny because you can see how people reuse paper and reuse things. Like, like now, would somebody give you a business card that had something else written on it? Like, probably not, right? So they don't know what this other code is. So Roger Can we just, just say this villain's a dumbass? <laughs> because we'll find out later what that means, but like this is almost all the evidence on one. It's hilarious, card. actually. So, you know. Anyway. All right. So but it could have been overlooked. Like it really could it was for a while. So Roger goes to see King at his house. He's got this big mansion. He's in like a smoking jacket. He's sitting there like playing piano. The butler answers the door. <laughs> so Roger confronts him and says, um, I think Nick called you on the day that the cub reporter was murdered. And King has this very fussy, he's kind of, he says, he says, no, uh, uh, that, that's not true. Well, maybe there's a reason. So he calls his butler in. His butler's name is Gordon. Gordon? Gordon. <laughs> so he brings Gordon in and questions him. And Gordon says, oh, well, I used to play, I, I, I used to place bets with Nick. So Gordon says, I did talk to him I did talk to Nick on the phone a couple of times about the gambling. And King is very like, well, we can't have gambling. I can't have this. And then now my butler is associated with a murderer. And oh, my goodness. Blah, 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 blah. Um, all right. So Roger's a little, he's a little mollified by all of this. He doesn't seem too suspicious at this point. So um, Roger leaves King's house. And here's something that I don't understand. There's a car that like kind of races past him like really close to him and goes down the street. I'm not really sure what that was about, whether it was Gordon the butler or not, or what was going on. I don't know either. Okay. All right. It was just kind of, I don't know. It was just like a little I, weird I thing. I think they're trying to imply there's communication going on and one of them took off in a hurry, but I don't care enough to figure it out. <laughs> Mr. Lowell King, he has dyspepsia and a mole on his right thigh. What have you got, an x-ray eye? Mm-hmm. And me with my stocking on backwards. <laughs> Pardon me, aren't you Mr. King, Mr. Lowell King? Why, yes, I... I what can I do for you? Don't you remember me? No, I, I'm afraid I... Where have we met? Can we go where uh, there aren't so many, uh, shall I say, ears? But my dear young lady, I, I scarcely know you. Oh, rapidly friendship ripens. A moment ago, you didn't think you knew me at all. <laughs> now we have Jay Reed. Jay Reed is over at Verna's place. We find out that she had given him five grand for his nonprofit, and he had promised that Nick would be pardoned. All right. Obviously, that's not, what's, that's not what happened. So now she says, I want my money back. I want my five grand back, see? And uh, Reed says, I don't have it. It's in my safe deposit box. And she says, well, we're going to go there right now in my car together. I'm not going to let you. And she is awfully bold. Like, she didn't even pull a gun on him. I was expecting her. I was like, what is she going to do with this dude who is, it sounded like to me, she was luring him. He was luring her into a trap. 
but she was like, no, I'm going to force it. I think she was basically saying, I'll take you down with evidence, right? That was the idea was that she would snitch on everybody and in- implicate this guy too. But I, I don't, I don't know because I don't even know why he went along with this, but it doesn't matter. I don't know why he went along with it either. She really didn't have a lot on him. Right. Well, I mean, what is it? Extortion? Like, not really? Like, I don't know what the charge would be there. Unethical. I, I don't know if it would have been illegal. But, he, I, and I don't know what his game plan was, whether he was just going to find some money, whether he had in a little bit of money and was just going to give it to her because she was going to be a pain in his ass. Well, he later mentions it's just him, right? Like, he's like, oh, there's actually not that much of a charity. Like, there's not, it's not actually a nonprofit. Right. It's just me. Right. So it sounds like it was a scam, essentially. Right, right. To scam them out of the, the five grand. Right. Yeah. So anyway, there's a, there's a little touch that I found so interesting in this scene where they're getting ready to go and Reed actually helps Verna get her coat on. Even though she's like... You're going to give me my money back, you motherfucker, and I'm going to drive you there because I don't trust you as far as I can throw you. And he, like, puts her coat like, on her. Still a gentleman. Uh, th- to the end, you know. Um, I just thought that was really very cute, interesting, and I think very uh, telling of the, t- of the time that they were in. All right. So they're driving to the bank. She hits the horn because there's somebody in the street. So she hits the horn, and then she passes out crashes the car into the curb. All right. So Reed tries to run off. Now there's, you know, people coming up, oh no, accident, whatever. Reed tries to run off, but somebody's like, bro, you were just in a car accident. You have to stay here. Well, you know? actually the cop who was watching all this was following them. Remember, there was that police officer station. So I think that's how he gets on the scene very quickly because of that. Because they had stationed a cop to watch what was going on. And she left in a hurry with this other dude. So the cop follows and then he sees all this. Right, yeah. So the horn is still going off. It it got it went on so long it was actually a little bit of an annoyance. I think they could have like sound designed that in a different way. It was actually making me think of Chinatown. But anyway, um, which actually the reverse because Chinatown was after this movie. But so somebody opens up the hood and cuts off the horn and, and Verna's Verna's dead. You know, that's and she kinda dies off screen. Kind like, of you off know screen. what happens. But you don't see it happen. You no. just hear the horn, which I thought was actually a nice touch a little bit. But it was a little bit like, uh, wait, is, are you sure she's dead? <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, I we don't see them pull her out of the car. <laughs> right. Or anything, anything like that. All right. So Roger gets on the scene. He says, you know, what's going on with the horn here? Turn that horn back on. And um, it under the hood, they reconnect the horn. Like, I don't really know how that works. But anyway, they reconnect the horn and it starts going off again, and he inspects it, and he finds a piece of metal stuck under the horn. So that was there. That was cause, that was causing the problem. And they discover that Verna was killed by a poison dart. All right, there we go. And and also too, I thought she was slumped over on the horn, so it was actually this thing stuck underneath it. Right. That's that was what the... I thought first as well and then after the crash she obviously wasn't on the horn anymore and it was still going off so i don't know that was kind of a nice little touch you know i don't really understand how a piece of metal under the horn makes the horn go off when you push on the horn or how a poison dart that's stuck under the horn poison i don't know Uh, whatever whatever it's fine all right so now at this point they arrest reed because he was there burn is dead they also, at this point, think that he accused Nick. He was in the room. 
and they're questioning him. Okay, so meanwhile, uh, Jerry is out to dinner with a with a, another reporter from her paper, and they discover that neither one of them has any cash on them, which I think is hilarious because that's something that could happen to people today. <laughs> you don't have any cash on you, and you might only have credit cards, or you might only have your phone to pay with or something. So pretty funny. Um, so what they decide to do is to write a check. All right. For you kids out there. What we used to do is write, we used to have like a, like a checkbook and it would be issued by the bank and it had some stuff on it that made it look a little bit official, barcodes and whatnot. And you would write out an amount of money and then the, the bank would give the person to whom you wrote the check that amount of money. And this doesn't really happen today. Like, you can't really do this almost anywhere today. But I think at this time, 30s, 40s, you, like, uh, almost anywhere would cash a check for you. And by that, I mean you give them the check and they would give you the money. So I don't understand why Jerry can't just pay for the meal with the check. She writes a check for $10 and she wants to ask the bartender at this restaurant to just give her the $10. And he's like, no, we don't do that. Like he literally has a sign that says we don't cash checks. The reporter and this little bit of levity that kind of has something to do with the plot, but not really, has a dollar. So he gets a he gets some quarters from the bartender. He's playing a slot machine that happens to be in the bar. He's trying to win some money. I guess he's trying to win the money to pay the bill. Doesn't work out. All right. So to, as a lot of people have gambling issues in this movie. So who walks in the door then but king king walks in the door and jerry tells him the problem and he says oh i'm here all the time i know the restaurant manager um i'll get him to cash your check it's no no problem the waiter takes the check takes the check back to the restaurant manager the restaurant manager burns the check at this point we're like well like what like why would you do that he thinks it's from king he doesn't understand it's from this other person he's from jerry so the manager opens his safe he puts some cash he gives it to the gives it to um the waiter who gives it to king who gives it to jerry because of a kerfluffle that goes on with the other reporter she never really looks at what they handed her so she doesn't really know what this money is that she just put in her handbag so it's a little bit contrived but it's kind of interesting it's an interesting plot device that they it, use there. It, the uh, the other reporter does a lot of work, right? So he's supposed to be the plucky comic relief male version. Uh, he's quite snarky. He has a lot of lines, and he's constantly sparring with, I think they call him Sherlock, the guy who sort of guards the door to the DA's office. And there's just like a lot of dialogue of him trying to, he's trying to keep up with Jerry. He's essentially her competition. That's one of the reasons why uh, they are having whatever at lunch or dinner or whatever they're, they're essentially. And then he's also kind of, you know, not necessarily a successful reporter, or at least he doesn't have any money on him. So he's totally unhelpful. Um, but he's definitely there to be sort of amusing. And he has a lot of snappy lines right along with Jerry. Um, but in the end, he's sort of useless and he's, they're all there to do what has to be some of the worst criminals ever. I just, they're so bad at their jobs. I can't between the card with all the information on it and this hilarious mix up, uh, boy, are they bad at, at crime. Right. So here's what we find out. When Jerry goes back to the DA's office, she's talking to the switchboard operator. His name is Tommy. She sees him reading a library book and she's looking at the spine of the book and she's realizing letters and numbers, oh my gosh, kind of in the same configuration. 
So three letters or numbers, dash, three letters or numbers, it's a, it's a library book code, right? So sh- shelving numbers. So she realizes that in the excitement, she drops her bag and Tommy is helping her pick up the contents of her bag off the floor. And he's like, why do you have $500 bills? So it turned out what they had done is they had t- taken like a couple of singles and wrapped it around like five $500 bills. So it wasn't that many bills for her to feel like when she received it that it was more than $10. Like it could have easily just been 10 singles, right? So it, but now she's seeing what happened and now it's all, now it's all coming together for her. And as you said, the other reporter and Tommy, the switchboard operator, are the comic relief here. And you recognize that it's supposed to be comic relief, but I'm at this point, I'm thinking to myself, and I made a note here to myself that, like, was did we laugh at this? I don't remember laughing. No, there's a lot of I wouldn't even call it clever wordplay. There's a lot of like, haha, I'm tricking you kind of jokes. Um, they just don't play well. I think it's the artifact of the time. I don't know that the, I think the humor very frequently was like this. But it's it's definitely a different kind of humor that uh, it just it's a cl- it's clunky. It's just clunky. There's just and it takes up a lot of time. There's a lot of dialogue between Tommy and this reporter that just goes nowhere. It's just the reporter essentially trying to one up Jerry and he can't compete because Jerry can waltz right in because she knows the D.A. and she just gets access to him. And the other reporter, we don't even know what his name is. He keeps complaining about it. And it's just like, OK, well, I don't know what you think's going to change. Uh, and his he basically settles for essentially trying to take Jerry to lunch or dinner and get her get information from her, which doesn't work all that well anyway. So there he's really no help. Yeah, poor Jerry. Everybody is using her for something, and she's the only one that has any brains. That's true. All right, so Tommy now Jerry has taken off. So Tommy fills Roger in on what happened, and the other reporter fills in the other part of what happened at the restaurant. So he tells Roger what happened with the check and that Jerry never looked at the money that was given to her. And that's why she had all of this money and didn't, didn't realize it. So Roger's like, Hmm, this is not right. So then they find out at this point that the book with that had the same shelving number that was written on King's business card was a book on poisons. <laughs> This is the worst criminals ever. Right. And then who checked it out last but King's butler, butler, Gordon. Gordon. So what's also really hilarious to me here is that this is very low-tech stuff here that they're being caught up on. Like, literally, library records. Who checked out a book? Which is not but the first time that's used as a plot who device. Who checks out the poison book? Like, steal it. You're a criminal, for God's sake. Have some respect. Or ha- have a library card that's not your own. That's a I fake just, one. It just kills me that he's such a discerning citizen that this person would take the library card out, use it, and make leave a paper trail... But would pay someone to murder other people and and also be in charge of an entire operation that burns checks and apparently money launders. But right. let's make sure we use that library card. Right, right. Let's not steal a book or try to go buy it somewhere. It may have been really difficult to do that, but I don't know. 
What do you want? Hello, I'm Jerry Reynolds. How are you? Not so good. Oh, I remember you. <laughs> Little gal that mooched in here like a long-lost friend with a kind of a shoulder you like to spill things to. The next thing I knew, I was all of the front pages. Go on, get out oh, of Wait a minute, Fern, you're just upset. You're excited. Don't burn me. You don't know me that well. Anyway, so Roger gets Tommy to use the switchboard. Okay. All right. For you kids that don't know what a switchboard is, is that it used to be that people's phone calls would actually have to be physically connected. So there would actually be cords and you would plug them in to the board. And the way that you would connect to make your phone call is not that you would dial it and it would ring that other phone. You would dial the operator. The operator would connect you physically by unplugging and plugging in a cord. Okay. So you could get up to all sorts of shenanigans with this, and Tommy does, and he knows how to because he listens in on people's conversations and whatnot. So what they decide to do is connect King's phone and the restaurant owner, the restaurant manager, at the same time. And then what that, in effect, does, it's sort of like they each think that the other called. So, like, both phones are ringing, but who called who they're kind of calling each other at the same time, but neither one of them actually called each other. And then, because you're the switchboard operator, you can also listen, okay? So that's what Tommy does, and then everyone is listening. And it just so happens that Jerry is at King's house. She really shouldn't have gone there, but she did. I don't know what she'd hoped to do. She knew at this point that it was him. She had to have. So uh, maybe she just wanted to get some quotes out of him or something. So Jerry's there with King. The phone rings. It's the restaurant owner. And it turns out uh, his name is Garrick. So this guy and King were partners in some kind of a protection racket. And that's the check situation that they had some kind of system in place. Okay. So Garrick misunderstood the, the check cashing situation that he meant to give the money to King but then King gave that money to Jerry. So that was just the whole misunderstanding with that one, with that thing. Again, like masterminds here, masterminds. <laughs> All right. So now King and his butler, Gordon, they realized Jerry knows what's up. They got to get rid of her and they got to get the money back. Okay. It's $2,500. I did not look up what that would be in today's dollars. Um, so, but meanwhile... Roger and his, like, second-in-command and this other detective have put it all together, and they're rushing over to King's house because they heard the conversation. They know Jerry's there. Now they're worried about her. So King is now monologuing and confessing to everything, and he's constructing another poison dart while Jerry's there in the room with him. I don't know why, like, I don't know how he was going to explain her body being found there. Maybe he was just going to have Gordon go dump her in a lake or something. I don't know. Um, but anyway, so Roger, at that at this point, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't complete the murder. Roger bursts in. And then King immediately kind of turns with his dart to try to get him, try to get Roger with the dart. Also, makes no sense for him to do that. But Jerry, my girl Jerry, picks up some giant fucking vase and hits King on the head with it. And he goes down, and then there's a struggle because the restaurant manager has now shown up with his goons, 
and there's a tussle, but it's over pretty quickly. And I feel like Gordon was in there too, but I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, Gordon was in there Gordon's too. Gordon's in there too. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so all of the bad guys are arrested, and and at this point they're figuring out that all, this dyspepsia medication that King was taking that was the poison, and he was like crushing it up and uh, using it as the poison. Don't really know what it could be. Have no idea um, what this poison was. And uh, then the movie ends with what? As all of these movies do, Mike, what's the very last trope? Of the these law enforcement authority figure proposes to the plucky reporter. Yep. Yep. The so, end. The end. Once again, you have the cop and the reporter ending up together. I don't know. In today's world, it would be a little bit like, uh, I don't know that that's so ethical that you would share information the way that they did. You know, obviously you want to catch people that are doing harm, right? It could be doing wrong, but I don't know that you necessarily share that kind of information, particularly when you're in an intimate relationship with that person. I do know whether or not it happens today, but it was something that they used to do, at least in the past, was that the police might release certain information to reporters on purpose as if they were leaking it. But it's not really a leak. They're doing it on purpose because they want it to be published. They want it to get out there because they, it serves some purpose of theirs. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a thing. But at the same time, I don't know that it would be cool for a DA and a reporter to be married and to be shared, sharing information in that way. So. Yeah. Well, and marry is a whole other thing. This is dating, right? So the dating is constant. It's almost kind of worse. Yeah. Everybody complains about it. In every movie this happens, everybody's like, well, the only reason you get information is because yeah. you're screwing the DA. You know, yeah. like there's a lot of that kind of vibe. So it's, it, it seems like it's more the newspapers at the time who don't particularly have ethics. They're much more concerned about whoever gets the scoop. Um, yeah, right. And, Selling papers. Uh, yeah. Plucky newspaper reporter is one of the best for that reason. But it, it is a weird situation because there's definitely a lot of tension around what information she uses to her advantage versus the information that the DA or police officer has to use for the investigation, right? So there's always this cat and mouse game of how they share information between each other and how, what they what they say to the public. Right, and should she have special information that she acts upon, right. I guess, is also the thing, because she has only obtained it. Yes, she's trusted. Yes, she pretty much solved the whole freaking thing, but... Should that information have been given to every reporter who asked to receive it? Or you should not be giving it to anyone. Right, right. Okay. I have a question about these dyspepsia pills. I'm trying to figure out. So they show him. He slowly puts it together. So by the way, as he's talking, he's got to open his pill case. So King opens the case. Then he has to open one of the pills. They're big fat pills. That's the whole point of this. And then there's the little poison dart in there and powder. At one point, I think they say don't touch it, right, when they come in. So I guess is the powder the poison and the dart is coated with it? Or is the dart just concealed in the powder? I don't know. But it's clear that King has this little mechanism. It's a rubber band, right? So he takes this finger sling and shoots it. But it is not fast. And I also don't know how he does it without poisoning himself, if touching it at all, is if it's this deadly. Um, and I sure as hell don't know how he did it in front of a room full of witnesses, right? I, I Frankly, the blow gun cigarette holder is more believable 
than him surreptitiously opening a pill, taking a dart, holding it gently in his hands without poisoning himself, and then firing at this the the uh, his victim without anyone seeing him. Well, here's what I'm going to say about that, and I might be giving too much credit to this movie and to the character and the writers and everybody involved in this. But what I would say is that King did not know that he was going to be strip-searched. He might have surmised that something like that might happen after Nick fell over dead. But on the way in, he could have had it already prepared. Matter of fact, he would have because he was literally there for that purpose, Mm -hmm. right? So he may have had the whole thing prepared already. Now, whether or not it would hurt you by touching it, we're not sure. It was kind of at the end, they were like, don't touch it, which I would say to anyone, if there is a powdery substance that someone was going to use to kill another person, I would advise someone not to touch it too. So whether or not it would actually hurt you if you touched it, but there was no reason for them, for them to, to touch it. I think it was just, somebody was just being a dum-dum and was just going to like put his hand in it. It was like, don't do that. You know, why are you doing taste that? Taste it. Just taste it. Taste see it. Like. You know, it's like the kids when they like, they put their hands in a fire if you let them. Because they're just like, ooh, what's that? You know, yeah, it's just, yeah, taste it. What? Like it's cocaine? Like I don't understand <laughs> what that was about. And, but the idea was though, is that if he was questioned as to why he had something on him that looked like a medication or could have theoretically been a poison that he would say, oh, it's my stomach. And he played that up and he was all like, oh, it's my stomach. I think all of his little fussiness demeanor situation was bullshit. Yeah. And they make that point because he gets much more serious and he's like, no, my dear, I'm going to have to eliminate you because you discovered my stupid plan. Right. Right, but he was acting. So some of the stuff that he did was was thought out and, and whatnot, and then some of the other stuff that he did just didn't make no damn sense. Bad at crime. Bad at crime. That's right, sir. We checked right through that number, CH3 and PD2. The title of the book is Grace Toxicology, The Study of Poisons and Their Antidotes. Now, the last three people who took it out, believe me, it isn't the bestseller either. Never mind that, Collins. Never mind the book review. Go ahead, please. Well, the last three people who took it out were Dr. Harvey Nelson... Thomas Gordon and Dr. L. Little. Poisons and Gordon. Did you say the East Parkway branch? That's right, sir. Gordon is King's butler. Don't tell me it's the butler. It's always the butler. All right. So here's the big question, Mike. Is this a horror movie or something else? No. No. Not a horror movie. Something else. I think officially it's like a thriller or mystery. Yeah, I think. it's a murder mystery. It, it's actually a, an interesting uh, attempt at a whodunit. This is probably the first uh, almost fair play whodunit. There's parts of this that I'm like, I don't know how we would figure it out. By the way, you didn't explain to the kids the Dewey Decimal System. Are you going to go through that too or no? Well, no, because this was not <laughs> it was, the Dewey it wasn't Decimal quite System. Like, it was like a weirder, maybe the precursor to the Dewey Decimal System. I don't even know what system this was. But. I know. Now I'm like, oof, I should really know. When they started using the Dewey Decimal System. Um, I do not. Maybe I can look it up in real time. Uh, but the thing of it is, is that it, it was not the Dewey Decimal System. It was. It basically looked like a code. Um, and whether or not libraries used the same, all used the same system or used different ones to shelve their books. So presumably it probably had something to do with a coding system that ha- that was indicative of perhaps the title, the author, 
the topic, that kind of thing. Yeah, so fair play whodunits essentially are that uh, mysteries you can figure out. And it they made a dodge at that and tried to make it that you could potentially figure it out with the 1313. So the 1313 was interesting because that's one of the first movies we've seen where they actually let you figure it out before everybody else does. So we knew that somebody in King's household was responsible for the 1313 phone call and therefore potentially involved in the murder before the DA or even Jerry figured that out. We, we f- see it because they show the 1313. So I thought that was interesting. But then they sort of like completely whiffed that because they had Gordon be the red herring, the butler uh, being responsible for the phone call. And then we have this library book situation. And to your point, if you do not know how this works, you would never know what that book is. And we have no means of determining what it is. We just have a code. So I don't know that audiences would know that was a library book code. And if they did, they certainly can't figure out what book it is. Right. So, all right. The Dewey Decimal System was actually in use by this time. So it's a little bit confusing because the code, I don't remember what it was, but it was like J5Y dash, you know, something or other. So that really, maybe also because quite frankly, if you once you know what the Dewey Decimal System is and how it works, when you see it, you know it. Right. So if you saw that on a piece of paper, it might, I mean, it might take you a minute today. It would definitely take people several minutes to put it together. But I think people of that time would have put it together almost right away that that, that was Dewey Decimal System and it was... It was a book. I appreciate criminals who check out books on murdering people. It's it's good. It helps the police find them. So it's it's nice that he did that. But yeah, so it, it the whole point was this is very much a murder mystery, not a horror. Right, right. And the body count was Nick, mm-hmm. Verna. Mm-hmm. That's it, right? Well, whoever and the he cub murdered. reporter. Yeah, the cub reporter who was murdered. Which, by the way, is barely a like. I think they at one point be like, "I knew him. He was one of us." And like, we never. I, hear him. I, don't, I don't. I don't even know why he was killed. Especially. <laughs> well, I guess he was gonna dig up dirt on the, yeah. the boss, but like, yeah, okay, okay. But here's the thing: somebody else could have picked up his work. Jerry or anyone else at the paper might have picked up the work. Just killing that one person doesn't make a and there's story. No guide. mention of what he was about to reveal like there wasn't even speculation they just were like well he's dead yeah yeah and you know in addition wouldn't it have been easier to do like people do today kill the story you know by Mm -hmm. going and bribing the editor or getting something on the editor and making him kill the story i mean much more efficient to create a thing involving poison pills from a library book you took out you shooting rubber bands at people in a crowded room with lots of witnesses and the da and and faking a disorder right so that you can carry around powder that's how one does that's as one does all right i think it's time to give this movie some ratings and we are going to give it knives glasses of wine and screams and this is between zero and five zero being the worst five being the best i have no idea what i'm gonna do with this movie so i'm gonna start with you mike how many knives and knives refers to the body count how scary this movie was was it gory did it live up to its title so between zero and five knives 
what do you think? Did you kill that man? I didn't kill any man. Well, then didn't, didn't live up to the title. <laughs> um, look, this, I've never been so tepid about a movie. I, I don't hate yeah. it. It's not bad. No, it's not it's bad. It's just not very good. It's so sort of rote and it has twists, but even the twists are things we've seen almost in every other. I do. I This is the combination of like four movies. It's Buried Alive. It's um, Midnight Phantom. It's got elements of. Uh, anatomy of a psycho and i mean there's just all these elements where you're like oh okay here's this scene again so um i I have to give it we're doing knives it's not particularly i don't know it's not bloody or and violent is sort of vague so i'm gonna give it um i don't know one and a half okay i think i'm gonna give it one i'm gonna give it one Nice. I, I'm not even mad about it, so I'm, I'm just kind of like I don't know. I'll give it a half because yeah, I feel I like I'm not I don't mad know, about it. Care that you much know, about but, it? Yeah, one knife. All right, so let's move on to glasses of wine, and this represents if it was fun to watch. Did it have any unique moments? So between zero and five glasses of wine, what do you think? Uh, I mean, look, Jerry's no Sue Walker. We're going to talk about her next episode. Oh my god. Uh, <laughs> I feel I know, like I'm I gonna be crush. hearing about Sue Walker I have a for crush forever. On Sue. She's we haven't like even amazing. gotten to that movie yet. You're already talking about her. Um, but they're just that she's just not the pluckiest of reporters. She does a pretty good job. I think she's fine. Um, she saves a lot of it. Uh, the humor's not that entertaining. The murder is not that unique. Uh, the plot isn't. They did it in a police station. We saw that in Midnight Phantom. It's just it's just all this stuff. So just a lot of meh all around. Um, I'm gonna go uh, one and a half. All right, I'm I'm going to give it two. I'm going to give it two glasses of wine because it was well acted. There was an attempt at levity. There was an attempt at uh, some banter between the characters. And, you know, it was apparently funny that this reporter had a, like, a gambling problem. You know, ah, ha, ha, that was oh, one oh, of some oh. jokes. You know, Tommy, the switchboard operator, was listening in on people's conversations. And Tommy reads books. So he's and Tommy got, reads books. They constantly and by the way, make fun of this. That he reads books and his imagination. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and he reads books on crime. So that's And also... Tommy's right the entire movie. He figures everything out and he says who it is every time and he's right all the way through. And they, me- they, they, they mention that at one point. They're like, Tommy, you were right. And he's like, I was? And they never listen to him. Yeah, I mean, they kind of do. I mean, he's sort of helpful, but he's also fucking wise ass. Like, yeah. seriously, a wise ass. I think in a way that I don't know that I've seen that kind of character i mean if gen x transported all the way back to 1941 he was very sarcastic with everybody and held his own even though he was young but he was definitely getting up to some shenanigans steps away from the da's office yeah listening in onto people's conversations and they put, the and they board. know he does it they just are like oh well, like, well, yeah. that's sherlock well you know Maybe they pay him. His name's Tommy. I don't know why you call him Sherlock. They call him Sherlock. They oh, do. Okay. His name is Tommy, but they call him Sherlock because he's he's reads all these crime novels and everything. They're like, okay, Sherlock. But yeah, his name is Tommy. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, they know that he does that, and nobody tells him not to do it. And like, he admits a whole bunch of stuff in front of the DA and doesn't seem to care. But maybe nope. they pay him crap, and so they're just like, eh, that's you know, that's his entertainment for the job. He seems like an intern that just happens to be in exactly, the room. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So. Now, the final rating, which is an overall rating, is how many screams we're going to give this movie between zero and five. What do you think, Mike? Two. Yeah, two. I think it's a solid two. Okay, no. I can't really go any further than that. I don't have anything else to say. I mean, it's no. a two. It was well acted. 
Yeah. I did watch it three times all together, although I think I may have fallen asleep at the end of the first one, <laughs> um, the first viewing. But um, yeah, but I did watch it a solid two more times just to try to put everything together because it, these movies, they move so fast. It's stuff that we're not used to seeing in movies as modern audiences. I think these tropes are would have been well-worn, well-understood by audiences of the time, but it's not something that we are used to. And so putting it all together, um, and then plus the black and white, the transfer was pretty good. It was fine. I didn't have trouble following it in that way. The sound was fine. But truly, it was just kind of mediocre. It wasn't really anything wow about it. We kind of expect it to be well acted, right? We kind of expect the leads to be good looking. So, uh, and, and we kind of expect there to be nothing jarring about the sound or the sets or anything like that like we expect it to be a smooth movie movie watching experience which it was which is probably a feat in and of itself for 1941 that was there was no weirdness or jumps or whatever it was very well constructed but it just didn't really do anything all that interesting Okay, let's move on to the character associated with this movie that you created, Mike, for use in tabletop role-playing games. Who I've I've no idea. You had a lot of different choices. Who did you create? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I went with King. Okay. I basically made him sort of a uh, a dwarf who's had his beard shorn, so he's sort of this technical engineer who's very frustrated about his career ambitions and he turns to crime but he's bad at crime he has a book i actually i don't know why i thought i knew what the poison was which is curar cure i know his c-u-r-a-r-e because they mentioned that it was also used for for curing diseases so i, I felt like maybe that's what they were trying to go for but anyway that's what we name it in the in the, in the book um and he uses finger slings which is a thing finger sling the finger slingshot is a real thing and uh, that's what he does. So he's just bad at crime. He's sort of middle of the road. It sort of fits him. Um, he's definitely the kind of villain that is, uh, you know, he, he kind of deserves to be defeated. I think he's a good villain to sort of to sort of co- combat. He's behind the scenes, but he's he's a he's a small time racket kind of guy. So he, he's probably your he's not quite the sort of first line of guy that you're going to you know muscle. But he's not high up either because he can't even manage his restaurant very well. So it sounds like this is more of a lower-level character or a mid-level character? Yeah, he's low to mid. I wouldn't say he's low, like, first tier, but he's definitely just slightly... He's low-level management. Okay, all right. And what do his stats look like? What is he good at? If he's not so great at masterminding crime, <laughs> what what can he do? Uh, I don't know if he's good at anything, really, but he's certainly good at shooting that slingshot, so we got to give him a high dex. Everything else is pretty average. He, he's not particularly charismatic. Uh, he's not particularly strong. He's not particularly, con- you know, his constitution not very high. And, you know, I, I give him a little bit of intelligence, but he's just not, he's just not all that. He's, uh, his big one weapon is his finger sling, uh, which he can, which he can conceal, right? So that makes him a little dangerous with his ability to do a sneak attack, but that's it. So it sounds like he, this character, this villain, this character might be kind of like a bump on the road to a bigger situation. Like he might be that first encounter of your three encounter adventure, for instance. Absolutely. He, he's definitely your first 
main first early bad guy. He's certainly, like I said, he's management, but he's definitely not the guy behind it all. He also sounds like he might be a good sidekick for a higher level villain. Maybe somebody who is trusted with just enough information and sent out to do things, but is not smart enough or has enough skills to be the, the big bad. The other thing that King does well is he sets traps. So if we use the scenario where he slipped that poison dart under the car, which is a lot of work, by the way, for him to do that, um, we have that too. So he can essentially set traps with his dart. So he leaves them in places where you might prick your finger or your toe or whatever. Um, so he's, he's, and he's pretty good with sort of concealing. He can lie uh, pretty well. So you add all that together and he's, he's not bad at what he does, but he is a one, he's like a literal one shot villain, which is the finger sling. And it sounds like you could almost drop him in anywhere. Yeah. I mean, look, he's definitely at sort of tied to cities uh, and where people are, but he could be, he could really be anywhere where um, he's got to cover something up. Um, he kind of makes a potentially good assassin, right? He's, even though he's sort of characterized as a mastermind, he does more murdering than masterminding. Right. Well, the character in the movie did kill two people and it yeah. took a bunch of, it took a bunch of people to figure out that he did it. So we say he's bad at crime, but maybe not too bad. <laughs> he did have a pretty good success. He's right? just bad at covering it up. Right. Right. Yeah. And he also didn't know when to get out. Like he should have got out of town at that point. Absolutely. All right. So where can people find this villain so that they can download it and they can use it in their own role-playing games? So he's on my Patreon. We'll release him for free. We're going to do one a week as each episode releases. So he will be in on patreon.com slash Talion, T-A-L-I-E-N. And we will release it for free to the public so anybody can read it. Um, and you'll get the two-page stats and a background and some plot ideas on how to use him. He'll also be part of drive Through RPG. Uh, we'll have him on Drive Through RPG, and he's going to be part of Five E Foes Gothic Villains, which is actually a supplement to Five E RPG Gothic Adventures. So this has much more information. It actually gives details on how the finger sling works, because of course players are going to want to use the same thing. It talks about the poison that he uses, uh, a bunch of other sort of minutia that helps flesh out the character. It also puts him in the context of exactly what you said, Amber, which was uh, how he might fit into a criminal organization because you need low-level management. So he fits there, too. So there's a lot of different pieces that are in that. So it, on patreon.com slash Talion, you'll get it for free, just his profile. And on Drive Through RPG, you can get all the villains that we cover in this podcast at uh, Five E Foes Gothic Villains. Okay. I think that pretty much wraps it up for episode 21 of 50 Date Night Screams, I Killed That Man. And uh, we've talked about this movie for almost... The length of the actual movie <laughs> itself, which is hilarious. Because when we first watched this, and I admittedly did fall asleep near the end, I was like, this is going to be a short episode. But <laughs> you know what? We can talk. Okay. So <laughs> once again, thanks, Mike, for being my co-host on this adventure. Thanks and, for not killing me, Amber. Uh, well, you know. <laughs> it's always I, next time. If I could get any ideas from any of these movies about how I could get away with it, I mean, this is the problem. Don't use a finger sling and don't use a book of poisons you took out of the library. Right? I mean, if you killed over, they would assume it was me, right? Mm -hmm. That's just mm -hmm. where, I mean, of course you would go there. Who stands to benefit the most? I do. <laughs> I guess. Don't do it in a crowded room with the DA. I know, I'm right? I'm just saying. That's stupid. 
Okay, so we will see you next time on 50 Date Night Screams. Thanks, Mike. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to 50 Date Night Screams. Be sure to check the show notes to learn where you can watch this movie for free. The quality isn't always the best when streaming, so we've also included a link to where you can purchase it. You can also get much more information, including the characters from this and all the 50 Date Night Screams episodes at betrayon.com slash Italian. Until next time, don't stop screaming. 50 Date Night Screams is a production of Mal and Tal Enterprises. It is written, produced, and directed by Amber and Mike Tresca. Mm-hmm.